Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Buddhist Center podcast with me, your host, Chandra Dasa, and my colleague, Daya Ketu from Mexico City, who you're going to meet in a minute. I think we've lost track of our attempt to do seasons of this podcast for a hot second. Everyone in the world was doing season one, two, three of their podcast. I was reading the other day, the bottom has fallen out of the market with podcasts. So everybody's just back to doing what they did before, which is recording an episode when they're ready and they've got something to talk about that they love. And this podcast is usually about stuff people love. It's a podcast from the Tratna Buddhist community. And what we're particularly interested in is where Buddhism meets culture, and the cool, sometimes beautiful, thoughtful, occasionally even profound conversations that emerge when you get a bunch of Buddhists together and talk about something that really matters to them. Because Buddhists bring their best lives and love to bear on, well, just about anything, is my experience. And today won't be any different because we're going to be talking about Buddhism and AI. Everyone's talking about AI we thought we'd explore what some people think is a profound, some people think is a relatively superficial world of generative AI, assistive AI, chat GPT, etc. And we've got a perfectly computer-generated panel of people to talk to today, starting with my good friend and colleague Daikitu in Mexico City, where the sun is shining and it looks lovely and bright. Good morning, Daikitu. Good morning, everyone, here in sunny Mexico, when actually it's been very hot recently. Excited to be here at the podcast and discussing how Buddhism can meet AI and these new trends and discussing this together. Lovely to have you. And we've got a whole range of guests. They're not as far flung as all that. Most everybody's in England, actually. Is that right? I'm going to start off with Caroline Ivamipar, who lives at Adastana in England. Hi, Caroline. How are you? Hi, Chandra Dasa. Yeah, lovely to be here. Actually, I was just using ChatGPT to try and give me an Excel formula to remove one of the duplicates. It didn't work, but I think that's because I was rushing before coming here, not because of ChatGPT. <laughs> this podcast is not sponsored by ChatGPT, <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> lovely to have you, Caroline. And we've also got Todd Johnson, who I think is in London, but you spend your time between London and New York City. Todd, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Thanks very much, Chandra Dasa. Yeah, great to be here. Enjoying sunny London in the summer, but yeah, normally in New York City. Really excited about this topic of conversation. The last retreat I was on, besides the Bodhisattva ideal, ChatGPT was the number one topic of conversation in the tea room amongst Buddhists. So I think this is a very well-timed podcast. Excellent. That is excellent to hear. I'm going through alphabetically in case you hadn't noticed this. So next up is Kema Bandu, who is also at Adistana in beautiful Herefordshire in England. Hello, yeah, lovely to be here. It'd be interesting to talk about this topic of AI. It's a latent interest of mine. It's caught me by surprise recently, the developments. I used to be very interested about 15, 20 years ago, and now all of a sudden the whole world is talking about it, and I'm, I'm still catching up. Fabulous. Great to have you. And we've also got from London, Surya Naga. I wish you could see Surya Naga. He's got the most fly outfit on of anybody. I think I can say that of any of our guests today. Welcome, Surya Naga. You're looking summery and sweet. Thanks, Andradasa. Yeah, I'm well. Really, really happy to be here. Also enjoying the London sun at the moment. And I've also been using ChatGPT a bit today as well. And yeah, various other AI things I've been using quite a bit in my day-to-day -day work but also just binging lots of YouTube videos where people are either kind of harboring a lot of doom and, you know, talking about the end of humanity, but also talking about all of the amazing new features that are coming around the corner and everything that, well, are going to do everything from end cancer and solve the next pandemic and solve climate change to all of the opposite of those things as well. So, yeah, I'm really interested to see what comes out today. That's probably the nature of the whole podcast right there. It's going to save you. It's going to kill you. It's going to do both. <laughs> I suppose Buddhism has a very particular approach to that. One thing I've been looking at in my own engagement with assistive AI or whatever you want to call it is actually, first of all, AI is a really bad term for all of this technology. I saw a really interesting interview, which I'll, I'll probably mention later again, with Ted Chang, the sci-fi writer. And the first use of AI was, I think, in 1954 or something like that in some papers. And he was saying it would have been much better if they'd found a different phrase. <laughs> it would solve all sorts of problems now. 
But then again, machine learning using and deploying high-level applied statistics based on large language models is a lot less sexy and much harder to say than AI. So we're going to say AI. We know people out on the internet. It's a catch-all term for lots of things. We'll come on to some of the issues with the content of all that in a minute, but this is really not primarily a tech chat. So it would be good to hear more about how each of us has used these tools in our life and work so far, and in a way why it excites you, if it excites you, or why it terrifies you, if it terrifies you. I'm going to open that up to you first, Todd, because I know that it's a field that you work in and are quite interested in. Yeah, we work with it kind of quite actively in my current area of focus at work, and we're always looking for the latest or new technologies that we think can improve our ability to kind of run our business. So from that perspective, I work around it with a lot of colleagues that are actively using these tools. What's interesting in that capacity is I'm also in a role that involves strategic thinking, and some of that is considering the implications of some of these technologies on our business, ethical considerations, legal considerations, regulatory considerations, all of those things, I think tend to, when we have new technologies, show up late in the process. We get the technologies and then we try to figure out, okay, well, how do we regulate that or how do we deal with it? And I think what's been nice about what's going on with this latest wave is if you look at some of the leadership going out already and saying, this is something we should be regulating, this is something we should be thinking about because it's a pretty powerful technology. Whereas in previous, I think, waves, we built the technology and tried to figure it out later. If we look at something like crypto, that was, let's deploy it and then let's figure out what we do. And I think with this one, it'll be interesting and important to figure out how do we protect as well as exploit these new technologies to productive aim. But it's interesting being on the commercial side of its use because everyone, if you don't have a strategy around AI or use case, you know, you're seen as somehow not a successful business or certainly not a business that people should be investing their money or driving up the price of their stock. So it's also interesting to see how businesses are reacting to this idea of AI, the word AI, just put it in your investor presentations, you know, have people talk about it, whether or not you really have a strategy around it, but just make sure you include it. And I think that's also, as a Buddhist, an interesting way to, to see how businesses approach these huge waves of technology. And has that been a factor for you in your own engagement with it? The fact that you're a Buddhist, you're practicing, I'm imagining sometimes that's a little bit of a differentiating factor from the other yeah. people in the room when you're talking about this. No, definitely. Because I don't know if people call me a Luddite sometimes, because I tend to experiment with the technology, then think about it, and then decide whether in the long run this makes sense. And social media for me was a perfect example of my Buddhist practice made me look at social media through a very different lens of utility. Like, is this really helping me from the craving perspective? Is this making me more anxious? And when I looked at all those things, I realized, you know, it's, it's not helping me. It is making me more anxious. And a lot of that came to me in meditations and, and thought. And so I don't really use social media anymore because of that. So I think with this, in a personal context, a little bit less so, because I tend to want to wait and see how practical is this in my life? Is this really just you know, entertainment? Is this something that's meaningfully making my life better? Is it useful use of my time outside of work? So I tend to be a little bit less first mover when it comes to these new technologies at home. And Daikitu, has ChatGPT swept all before it in Mexico as well? Or is there a different attitude to this kind of technology? Or are you geeking out on your own about it when you're doing your work for us at Dharma Chakra? Of course, there's a hype here in Mexico talking about that, but I can see that it's only people talking about that, but maybe not using the tool itself. So it seems that it's more like fashionable to talk about AI, not really using it or really exploring it like that. At least that's my perception on, on this. A few people have been using it, but uh, for example, on my current work here at Dharma Chakra, I normally use some AI tools, and mainly uh, ChatGPT, for example, summarizing text, writing a blurb, or even improving an email that I'm writing. <laughs> like, uh, for example, saying if it's uh, to correct my grammar, because, of course, I'm not native English speaker. So it actually does a good job, but sometimes it's a little bit too cheesy or exaggerated. But I use it mainly for text. And also, I have been using lately more geeking out, like doing some coding, also, I have an automation tool using ChatGPT, helping me automate, for example, like Caroline said a few minutes ago about creating a formula. But also something that I've been doing, for example, in Satellite Body Center that is on the outskirts of Mexico City, we have like a big Excel spreadsheet with people that are joining some activities. So something that I thought is like, okay, let's analyze people assisting in every activity to see when, what point of time they are enrolling, what is the total, to have like a quick glance of people that are enrolling so that we can know if one course has two people and it's already happening in a few weeks' time. 
example, like a warning sign. So I went to ChatGPT and said, like, okay, I have this structure, and then give me the code. So he gave me the code. Eventually it worked. <laughs> but the thing is that I had to kind of guide it correctly. I remember an old saying in programming, like, if trash comes in, trash comes out. So that's something that I have to be attentive. But I mean, it's useful to be using ChatGPT so far. But there are some other tools that generate content, for example, that train video. And they are good in theory, but the execution so far is actually very poor. So the technology is still not there. That's also something that we need to keep in mind. Thanks, Taikito. It is good to hear the positive sides of this first. I was quite taken with something that happened on our team, which was that we've got a couple of people who struggle with dyslexia and grammar in general. And they just told me at one point, oh, we're using this to improve all of our copywriting for Dharma Chakra and for the websites. And it was delightful in a way. I was just like, oh, oh, great. I'd noticed it was all getting better. I didn't really know why. It was just great that they took that initiative and started using the tool. Of course, we subscribe as a business, et cetera. Caroline, have you been playing with these kind of tools in your own work and in your own spare time? Yeah. So you mentioned copywriting. That's probably primarily how I've been engaging in the world of AI. It's also, it's a better translation tool than Google Translate, I noticed. So if I'm in contact with friends in India. I can translate things better with ChatGPT than with Google. But I think a bit, as Daya Katie mentioned, it sort of does a good first draft a lot of the time and you need to tweak it for tone. I'm sort of a novice in the AI world, but it feels important to me that True Retina is engaging with, to some degree, the sort of cutting edge of modern culture. I notice often in True Retina talks, we give examples that are just like almost unbearably dated. And I think if we want to keep attracting particularly young people, engaging with new technology is necessary. I'm not saying I'm going to be one of those people. I'm sure other people on this podcast are much more engaged in that world than I am. But I do think it's important to engage with it to some degree, even if we don't fully buy into it. I'm looking forward to all the letters that I'm going to get out that section for all the people in Triatna who are over 65 and giving Dharma talks. I think you're quite right. I wholeheartedly concur. And Surya Naga, you and I have talked a bit about this behind the scenes, and I know you've been really exploring this whole area. What have you found yourself gravitating to both at work, but also in terms of just the threads that you want to pull in your own exploration? Mm. Yeah, a few things I could say. Firstly, I wanted to pick up on what you said before about AI being a bad term for it. There's a couple of thinkers that I've been listening to who both gave different names to AI. So Ian McGilchrist has preferred to call it artificial information because he says it's not intelligence and he has a whole thing about what intelligence is and isn't. And maybe we can go into that later. And Yuval Noah Harari, the author who wrote Sapiens, he's called it alien intelligence. So one of them's got an issue with the I and the other one's got an issue with the A. So I thought that was quite interesting. And well, his whole thing is that actually it's only artificial when we are controlling it. And he was talking about how very soon we won't be controlling it. That's a whole other thing, I guess, we could go into. But yeah, I mean, in my work for the Ergian Sanger Rapture to Trust, the main projects I'm working on at the moment is building a catalogue of all of Fante Sanger Rapture, the founder of our movement, all of his work, trying to make it searchable all in one place across all media. And that's a big job of pulling things together from a lot of different sources. As I was starting to think about how that might work, I started to think about, oh, well, actually, are search engines even going to be a thing in a few years? We're already at the point where ChatGPT is being used for a lot of things that Google would be being used. And Google have just announced their new chat style interface. And so I started to think like, oh, actually, will people just want to sort of ask questions and have a sort of chat? And then I started to think, oh, no, are people going to want it to, like, talk to you as if it's Bante talking from beyond the grave, beyond the burial mound? And I was a bit horrified by the thought, but also thought, well, I need to at least ask the question about that and think about it. People will be relieved to hear we're definitely not going to try and build that from the Akitsang Rush to Trust. But what I'm hoping to move towards is something that is a bit more of a chat style interface that tells you what Bante said about something, but always points you back at the source of exactly where he said it. And that's one of the things I think that's quite interesting and a bit scary about these things at the moment is that they don't completely tell you where they're getting the information from, which is where you get this problem of hallucinations where they're telling you things that just isn't true. I was just going to say that that was one of the topics at my recent retreat about this idea of a Bante bot, but some type of interface where you could ask it questions 
and it would go through the whole catalog of information and present you with exactly what you described a, a link to, like not just kind of a, an English worded response, but also a link to the information. And from my perspective, I think that's an interesting thing for us to explore because we have a lot of these talks and technology could be used to synthesize or come up with synopsis across all of this material and then allow people to have that conversation. One thing we kind of recognize is that the people that knew Bante personally start to age and we, and we lose them from the order that ability in their mind to kind of curate and reference a talk that Bante gave that they were there for or recall say, oh, Bante gave this talk back in 1969 and knowing exactly how to introduce the material based on the question that someone's asked in a study group or a talk that over the years we're going to lose that as people pass on. And if we spend the time with them now training these models to do some of that better, because a lot of people said it's not always good on the first cut. You need people, these kind of prompt engineers to work with the information. But I think that there could be some real value there. And I think some of the risks of the errors that these models make is based on the data that it's sourcing from. So if you use ChatGPT and it looks at the entirety of the internet for the answer to that question, then you're going to get all that other information influencing the answer. But if you trained it just on the talks and the catalog of information that we hold within Triratna, then you could have more of a the sense that this is going to deliver a result with some human interpretation that's going to really probably give a good idea of what people want a response on. Yeah, that's exactly the thinking behind moving in that direction. Can we train it to be more sort of specific from a relatively small data set, like all of Pante's work, maybe all of the Tarantina community's work and time as well? Is that interesting line between synthesizing lots of thought in the sense of bringing things together and then showing a bit of a summary and then synthesizing in the sense of, I'm sure there's a better word for this, but creating something new? Yeah, ChatGPT is very confident. It knows, even if it's really not accurate information. For example, when coding, it gave me code and then I put it, it doesn't work. But then if I pinpoint the error to one specific line of code. And it's because that specific code or method doesn't really exist. It's not only on coding. Whenever I've been copywriting, it gives you false information. And I have been reading some news that there was a lawyer in the US that was using ChatGPT. And I read that ChatGPT gave a lot of precedents and cases of one person versus another one, and they didn't exist. So ChatGPT is very confident about that thing. But again, we need to take into account what that tool does. And also in terms of intelligence, because I remember that one of the definitions of intelligence is to bring two subjects that apparently are separated and then find a connection between them. And in Buddhism, we find a lot of different concepts that maybe are not apparently linked. They have a connection. So even if we upload tons of books from Bante or PDFs or something, even training on a specific data set, it will be good for us to understand that maybe it's competent in giving you like a summary or things that are there. But I don't know if it's still mature enough to give you a link between two things that are maybe not too apparent. I was just interested in this question of the perceived confidence of the AI. And I noticed the effect that it had on me. I'm naturally quite a sort of critical, skeptical person. And if I was doing a Google search for some piece of information and then looking for it amongst the, the links that were returned, I'd be very much evaluating the source and trying to figure out whether I trusted or not, whether I, what kind of authority I wanted to give to it. And yet with these AI responses, I noticed a sort of desire to suppress that. I wanted to just believe it because it was being confident. I guess in a similar way, sometimes one knows certain people that speak very confidently and you just want to go with that. You just want to believe it because the confidence is convincing enough. And I was a little surprised and maybe a bit scared by this tendency in me to just want to hand over that questioning to the AI. It was, was scary. Yeah, that definition of intelligence linking to separate things. We've been talking about potential ways that artificial intelligence could really benefit us, like being able to catalogue and search through the entirety of all the works that Bante's ever produced. For me, the fundamental question about AI is, does it help us to become more free? Free from suffering, free from the endless cycles of negative mental states. Is it technology that will enable us to get off the wheel and onto the spiral? The wheel being the wheel of life, samsara, us going around and around in our same habitual patterns reactively, and the spiral being creativity and opportunity to respond differently, to become more and more spontaneous, compassionate and free. And I think it's an exciting opportunity, as Todd was mentioning, it's unusual for this kind of questioning to be happening whilst the technology is so fresh. I think that's the sort of fundamental question. How do we engage with this in a way that is a skillful means? 
ways in which we can engage in the world which help us to communicate the Dharma, help us to reach people to enable them to become more free. But they maybe don't look straightforwardly like the sort of neat Dharma that you get from, I don't know, the Dharma Pada. It's very interesting to hear all of this. I was listening to a podcast the other day with the guy who's in charge of Google Bard, and he was very thoughtful and actually much more conservative than I'd expected around just some of the questions Surya Naga raised about, in a way, where do you move past it just being another interface to information? And that question came in mind that you raised of just your willingness to cede all kind of intellectual autonomy to this thing that sounds so sure of itself. And he was really evoking the amount of care that in Google's context, they want to bring to your first and second level searches and then switching into different modes with the information. And it puts me in mind of one of my kind of heroes at the moment around all of this, who is a fantastic woman from the University of Washington called Professor Emily Bender. And she's probably the source for most of the skepticism that you read about this. And what I love about her is she's incredibly funny and she punctures the bubbles around AI particularly in terms of its bigger claims for itself. She wrote a seminal critique, I think it was originally in 2021, called On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots, Can Language Models Be Too Big? Which is famous for two things. One, it was the first ever academic paper to feature an emoji in the title. It's got a beautiful emoji of a parrot. And this evocation of stochastic parrots, stochastic just means pretty much synonymous with random. Things are distributed randomly through a system. And she was the first person to raise the questions that are now quite commonplace about the size of large language model databases and the fact that they're now already too big to document and also too big to categorize properly and the degree to which bias, prejudice, those kinds of things are built into the data set. And because there's no actual intelligence or language understanding going on with the models, it's just essentially doing a really great simulacrum of intelligence where it spits out stuff that does make sense and is really useful, but it's got all sorts of unchecked stuff going on in it. Anyway, she talks about all of that, and it made me think about specifically Buddhist models of intelligence. I was just leading a retreat this weekend, and we were doing a lot of reading from the Dhammapada. And certain Buddhist ideas about consciousness and the nature of consciousness that, for example, perception precedes experience, or that we are all actually interdependent and subject to conditionality, even if we feel random, or even if we feel that everything comes our way as somewhat random in the world. And I'm interested in whether any of you have started to sort of drop down under the surface level of this, how it's used, the technology itself, into thinking, Does this stuff make you question your own understanding of consciousness as a Buddhist? Is it bringing fresh perspectives to that? The way that I see AI is that it's a really, really powerful tool, right? It's a really, really powerful tool. And that's the reason why it is being talked about so much at the moment is because it's very, very powerful. And that means that it can be used for good or bad, like any power. But you won't be able to do either consciously if you're not aware of what your intentions are. To the extent that you're aware of your intentions, to the extent that you're aware of what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, you know, and the whole context around that as well, you'll be able to do something good with these things. I think that's very important. It reminds me as well of, you know, the Hulk from The Avengers. In the Avengers, I can't remember if this is in the Avengers film or somewhere else, but anyway, there's a whole thing about the Hulk has to be directed at something. And as soon as the Avengers start directing the Hulk at something, they're able to actually get him on side and use him as a force for good as part of the Avengers rather than this big beast that keeps wrecking everything. And uh, well, there's images like Vajrapani in Buddhism, which are, are very much like that, I think. I think it's interesting how these technologies change us as much as they create an opportunity for us to use or utilize it. I think of things like Siri or voice recognition, where we talk differently in order for these tools to understand us. We use emojis now to express things that we would have used words of in the past, and that conditions us, I think, to act differently in a way that a lot of times we just take for granted as not a big deal or a big change, but actually can have a big impact on us in terms of how we communicate with each other how we create and condition the reality around us through those tools. So I do think these technologies require a lot of awareness in terms of what's actually happening here with these things. And a lot of times we talk about artificial intelligence getting smarter and smarter and smarter, but we don't talk about how humans are 
maybe getting a little bit dumber in order to meet in the middle between the machine understanding what you want and you being able to communicate in the way that you normally do. And oftentimes it's like it's talking to some of these tools, it's like talking to a child. You kind of have to come up with a very simple, non-nuanced way of communicating in order to make your point understood. But to the average you know, eight or nine-year-old, they would completely understand what you're saying if you included elements of nuance or sarcasm or things like that, but a model won't. So we're changing how we communicate in order to meet that model's needs, which may or may not be in our interests, which I think we always should be aware of. Am I disserving the model or am I actually getting this benefit? And I think the example that's always interesting where we just go with it without kind of scrutinizing it is every time we do those checks where you kind of figure out where the stop sign is or the, you know, whatever you have to kind of verify yourself, the CAPTCHA checks, we're giving free data <laughs> to train these models and no one ever thinks to themselves, why am I always being asked to spot bikes on a screen without having anyone reward me for that? I'm just doing this because I'm being told to do it. So I do think there's a risk that without a certain level of awareness, which hopefully Buddhism can bring to the table, people may too easily follow what these machines are expecting of us or these technologies expecting of us versus us really saying as individual consumers, this is what we want to do or this is how we want to use it. It's really interesting. Professor Bender, who I mentioned a minute ago, she really annoys Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI, because she keeps making the point that in a way, however one uses these or however entertaining they are and how genuinely useful they are, they do function as something that makes a claim to intelligence that it doesn't actually have. And her point with that is that one of the things the companies who are developing the products are doing is changing the definition of human intelligence to mean that it's closer to the way their product works. And that is actually having a demonstrable effect on how people conceive of consciousness and their own agency particularly. And that does apply to the content of the language models. So if your language model is sexist or racist or European-centric or UK-centric, there's no incentive for the system to improve itself because what it wants to do is appear natural and lifelike and it doesn't really care about the content. So it's a very interesting idea that you raise in terms of are we starting to adapt ourselves to the way these systems work or are they still serving us? Yeah, considering what the impact is on us is really important. Todd, you mentioned social media earlier. I've definitely noticed my mind is more sort of fragmented and frenetic since I started using social media, since I got a phone when I was a teenager. And how we conceive of intelligence feels important through sort of Buddhist practice. My understanding of what intelligence is has definitely broadened like emotional intelligence, body-based intelligence. I've had several experiences over the course of the time that I've been practicing where there's been a huge release of tension in the body and there's no sort of cognitive equivalent that I'm experiencing, but I know that there's something has shifted. It feels important to recognize that that doesn't seem to be equivalent to what this technology is offering. And of course, the technology is going to be limited and conditioned by those who are coding it. An image that came to me, I don't know if this is going to work for people, but I wonder if part of the fear around these kind of new technologies is that they are powerful forces. And for us, the sort of primordial powerful forces, they come out in images like the darkeny. A darkeny being a wrathful, often female-formed sky dancer who encapsulates those basic drives like sex or the fear of death, things like that. And if you've got this really powerful force and raw power, is completely inaccessible to us. We can't see what the coders are doing. So the darkening is completely unknown to us. So we're dancing with something that we can't understand or even guess at. Just in terms of your question around the effect on the understanding of consciousness, I definitely noticed when I'd read populist articles, we're questioning or either opposing that at some point these technologies will become conscious. And then I'm asking myself, what, what would that mean? How would you know? What would be the criteria? And then, of course, I'm thrown back on myself. What does it mean for me to be conscious? What is it about my experience on my mind that makes it conscious? And of course, that's a fundamental Buddhist quest to try and understand the nature of the mind and the nature of consciousness. And so if AI helps us stimulate that quest, then I guess that's a good thing. I'm sure that's not the intention of it. But I'm also, I'm thinking if AI's goal is to mimic typical human behaviors or write an email that looks like an email that a human would write or generate an, an image that an artist might produce in a way it's quite a low bar it's impressive technologically but it's quite a low bar if you think about the potential of human consciousness and what we're trying to do as buddhist practitioners 
yeah, those questions for me came up very strongly, I think for the first time, really, really strongly when I saw the Star Trek episode where the android data is put on trial. They're trying to work out whether or not he has human rights, basically. His friends are saying he has human rights because he's made friends by this point in the series. And they're very much kind of advocating for the fact that he has human rights and he can't just be treated like property and told where to go without having any agency in the situation. And the episode climaxes with these very strong questions. Well, how do you know he is not conscious? He has this whole thing that says, prove that I am conscious. And the person can't do it. You know, he comes up with a bit of a definition, but whatever definition he comes up with, he can't prove it. But bringing it back to Buddhism, this question of what consciousness is, as Kamabandu says, is a big concern of Buddhism. But also it has a sort of view on it that is in some ways quite countercultural, like this whole idea that mind is primary, even the sort of idea that could be metaphysical could just be a sort of Buddhist rhetoric, which is that actually consciousness is the primary thing and matter is built on top of that. I think that's a really interesting idea to bring to these developments in AI, because if our individual consciousness is actually just an experience of tuning into something which is kind of universal and fundamental in the universe, then what's to say that actually computers can tune into that as well? Could computers, could machines tune into this universal consciousness in the way that individuals do? And if they were doing that, at what point would we have to treat that as a sort of equal level of sentience? I guess we're into do androids dream of electric sheep? That's our territory with this. I think it is worth pointing out, though, that the kind of intelligence to Kimabandu's point about a low bar in inverted commas, because in a way it isn't intelligence in the sense that there's no understanding going on, it's just statistical output. And the gap between that and data's positronic brain is orders of universes of magnitude different. In a way, it doesn't really matter because the thought experiments you can do around this and the explorations of consciousness that both it, sci-fi and Buddhism enable are what I think is most valuable in this. Yeah, no, in a way, what I can recognize is that sometimes whenever we talk about that, it's more like a concept to me. And for example, whenever we talk about creativity, there is an AI that is called Midjourney that can create very beautiful images. I think that already two images created with Midjourney have won contests for artists. So one can debate, okay, is that AI creative or is it not creative? Or is it just like regurgitating? I don't know how to say in English, but just remixing things from other artists. So in the same sense, how can we know if it's conscious or not? Of course, there are some tests like the Turing test that we can see that it's like a blind test. But that's not sufficient enough because we know it from the perspective of Buddhism is that consciousness is not only to trick someone to think if you're intelligent or not. It's way more than that. Consciousness also can be fake. You can train a AI to simulate consciousness. So in a way, it's like going in circles. So it's a tough thing to answer. And that's an old question, isn't it? I was just reminded when you were talking there, I remember watching a documentary about the artist, Willem de Kooning. And... He lived to quite an old age in the last, I think, at least decade of his life. He was clearly suffering from quite profound dementia. And he just went down to the basement every day in his apartment in New York and painted these extraordinary canvases for which he was justly celebrated in life and famous. And his paintings were worth a lot of money. And then there was just this huge problem of his output continued and continued and continued without him displaying the usual attributes of a conscious artist who could describe their work and articulate what that was about. And there was quite an interesting idea of, are the paintings worth anything? How do you ascribe worth to something? And how does that relate to model of consciousness? Does it matter? Are they beautiful? All those questions. And some of that's obviously in play. I think often we think about ethics in terms of how AI will impact our ethics and how we need to think about AI and usage of it. But actually, I was just struck thinking, oh, at some point, the question of how we judge whether this is conscious doesn't matter. And actually, there's that Sangharachita phrase, we need to become pagans before we become Buddhists. And I've been thinking about how ancient Indians would have really seen the world as alive. They would have seen it as an animist world. And maybe it's something like, actually, we have a responsibility to be ethical towards AI rather than considering how it affects us. Actually, we need to be kind to this machine learning rather than what it's going to do to us. 
I suppose some of this opens us up then into this whole area, not just of consciousness, but of how we relate. I think that's a really good point about how do we relate to AI, never mind how AI relates to us or matters to us. And this is one of the great conundrums, isn't it? Is our whole conception of consciousness is human-centric, as if that is the only model of consciousness or the only model of life. One of the things that Ted Chang, presumably influenced by Emily Bender, is very sharp about some of the negative sides of this in terms of how language plays out in the way human beings relate to each other. I think he describes AI as a force multiplier for capitalism and inequality in the hands of the wrong people. And at the same time, even though the dangers are obvious enough, people like to relate to objects and machines and non-natural systems. And I'm wondering if there's something about this blurring phase we're in, where our behavior, the social effect of introducing these models and these tools to human culture and society, is there something about that that echoes back again into our Buddhist practice? Are we stimulated by this to think newly about our own experience of freedom? Because it's presumably not just an intellectual exercise, this You could get any number of Buddhists or any number of other people in a room and they're going to have opinions about these sorts of areas. But I liked how you grounded it earlier, Carolina, in the idea of freedom and what that looks like. The role of human relationship and how we relate to the world and how we seem to seek out relationship as a kind of integral part of how we function. I think for me, the the big idea is to keep our awareness and our thinking big. As I said, I think with some of these technologies... They're narrowing our focus, particularly if a lot of AI is rooted in language, which a lot of times we study as Buddhists, the limitations of language in expressing and describing experience. A lot of these technologies, without language, they don't really function. So I think that's one thing that we should all be considering as we look at these tools and other influencing is like, okay, if they're all rooted in this idea of language and description, well, then that may cover a certain part of our experience, but it's not really addressing or dealing with or interacting with our other types of experiences, things that we know when we meditate or we know to be true when we practice, things that we can't find words for. Well, if we can't find words for it, how could a model ever seek to replicate or explain what that experience is? So my sense is keep our awareness about what the technology is doing, but also don't lose sight that there's a lot more out there in terms of our practice and our awareness that I don't think, at least from the way the technology is currently working or modeling, is going to even approach that side of our lives. And I think as long as that side of our lives is a prominent part of what we focus on, I think as Buddhists, we'll probably be okay. My worry is everyone else (laughs) just continue to narrow and narrow and narrow and get too stimulated, excited, too much craving around what all these technologies do, that that becomes a distraction from really pursuing bigger elements of awareness and consciousness that aren't going to be found in these worlds situated around AI. When you just said there about my worry is everyone else, I mean, that is the big thing in Buddhism, isn't it? We are worried about everyone else. The Dharma is very much telling us, well, the Bodhisattva ideal is telling us we need to save all beings. Enlightenment isn't really enlightenment if we're just worried about ourselves and our own suffering. In a way, that's the big reason why I'm interested in AI is because it can be a tool to help us spread the Dharma. You know, as Buddhists, we believe that spreading the Dharma, spreading the Buddha's teachings will be the thing that frees people from suffering because we've experienced that to some extent ourselves, and we believe that other people can benefit from that. So for me, actually, these are really, really powerful tools that can do a lot for us in that work of spreading the Dharma. A lot of people are worried about AI's effect on redundancies at the moment. I'm kind of seeing it from the other way of actually lots of us work in very small organizations where lots of us are doing loads of jobs at one time and we're not really able to compete with these big corporations that have loads of money to throw at things. AI can be a little bit of an equalizer for us if we use it well. I've certainly found that I'm able to do lots of things that I haven't been able to do before because AI makes me more technically skilled in a certain way. So I think there's a lot of potential there to use it in this way that really helps more people. Are you training a robot Suryanaga somewhere? It's going to be an army of robots Suryanagas going to spread the dharma. I like how you brought it back to the idea of enlightenment. If you're listening and you don't quite know what that means, I suppose there are different words in Buddhism or insight, awakening. Just the sense of a human experience where potential to live a fully creative, fully articulated life as a human being in the realm of kindness, in the realm of a kind of deep awareness, really taking part in existence and that being the root of stepping out of suffering. It's not an abstraction that you're free from suffering. It's something that's actually experienced, as you were saying, Suryanaga. And I'm interested in 
that kind of essentially human bit of it, the Buddha is doing what we can do. That's one of our central points in a way as Buddhists, what the Buddha attained, we can attain. And does AI help us bring that sense of relationship and sense of potential to fruition? Is there something that it adds to the mix that we couldn't do without it? You know, we couldn't do with just normal human relationship or books. Is the concept of sufficient technology, you know, are books sufficient technology? Do we need this? What is it it does, you know, Sunaga was suggesting there, that it makes us more productive and gives us a chance to level the playing field? But is there anything else? I mean, I think in terms of imagery and art, even though there's always the concern about it becoming derivative or, or not understanding who the original owner or author of that art is, a person who is trying to figure out a way to express something, often we turn to images to help express things that we can't express in words. So someone typing into a tool saying, this is what I'm thinking about, some kind of poetic statement, and having the technology present back an image that maybe better expresses what they put in words. We look to art a lot of times to inspire us, to motivate us to kind of express certain Buddhist concepts. And maybe that's one of the ways we could leverage that is like it could open up to a wider universe of imagery that we could create by putting words into these models to create representations. Yeah, one of the really important things about Buddhist practice is building our imaginal faculty. Such an important aspect of meditation is building out our imaginal faculty both to be able to transcend whatever sort of state of mind that we're in and enter into a new realm and that's what great art does and this is what visualization meditations are about as well entering into this realm where there are sort of beings made of light with a thousand arms and things like that you know lotuses growing out of clouds this is a world that we need to enter into where all these symbols and imagery have a deep meaning that can help us understand the nature of reality. And I think there is something there. I've certainly found it quite useful, actually, to play around with things like AI image generators to help me kind of feed into my meditation practice. When we're ordained, we take on a sadhana practice where we're specifically trying to imagine these beings and worlds in a very traditional way. But of course, if you run through the same sort of imaginal exercise every single day, there is something about that that can help you go deeper. But there's also something that can be quite difficult to draw inspiration each day. And yeah, I found image generators actually quite helpful for that. So I'd type in things that happen in my sadhana practice into image generators and just see like, oh, okay, that's a different way to imagine it. That's another different way to imagine it. And I've done that as well on retreats with painting. But of course, I'd spend a week painting something on a retreat that I can generate in a few seconds with AI. And there's obviously pros and cons to that speed. Some of that's fantastic, Sue. Like, it just makes me think there's all sorts of strands we could go down around. Dreaming your way into reality, dreaming your way into practice. I suppose actually it also made me think, somebody listening to this and hearing all this fantastical stuff, Scientology is also a form of science fiction and a form of religion. And it's very interesting that we inherit a tradition that is replete with these kinds of assumptions that in a way we are going to go and spend time in realms that are not physical. And that was one question that came up for me there around how embodied are we with this stuff as well? There is a difference between painting a picture for a week. In a way, the training is the fact that it takes a week and the fact that you have to feel it. But I also love the idea of you sitting feeding in data from your meditation to chat GPT, who knows what that's going to spawn for somebody else. Yeah, I was just reflecting on the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, which is rife with imagery and beautifully evocative narratives of how that awakening process happened. And it just sort of struck me how much they're pointing to embodied experience. And as you touched upon, Chandra Dasa, the process of painting something for a week is different from the sort of instant output that we can get with AI. And Todd mentioned the concerns of the way that we engage with this technology making us more and more sort of heady. So I, I think for me, that's the tension. Am I engaging with this in a way that, yes, maybe makes me more productive, but also the side effect is that I'm more alienated from my body, which actually is a huge part of what I'm trying to do is to come down out of the head into the body and be more grounded. For me, the question is, it's happening. How do we strategically integrate this in a way that enables us to be dynamic whilst engaging all the kind of perspectives that we bring from being Buddhist practitioners. It's very interesting to hear all the different perspectives. 
there are some other perspectives that could be in the room that aren't here, more critical perspectives, more hopeful perspectives. I'm sort of interested in where it lands now. Caroline, you were saying this is happening. This is something that's going to be part of the world going forward. We're Buddhists. We want to take part in the world, take part in culture. Where do each of us see this, again, in terms of practice and in terms of our community, in terms of the needs of the world, as trying to respond to the needs of the world? Yeah, basically, I think that the question for me is how can we use this tool, like consciously and also ethically? For example, digital marketing, that some people say like, oh, maybe it's not ethical to engage in that, but it's a tool. It can be used for good. So we promote our content on social media, on digital channels, even though that we can engage, let's say, not skillfully or not correctly, including the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings in those spaces. So how can we utilize this as a tool, but also taking in mind to use it consciously and ethically? Yeah, I just think it's important that we have the conversation. And I think it's important that we draw from the most experienced Buddhist practitioners in our tradition, right through to the digital natives who are at university coming to our meditation classes. I think they've got things to say to each other. To a certain degree, this isn't our first rodeo. It's a different kind of rodeo, but it's not the first time we've had a big technology come into our society. I think what's interesting looking back at things like the iPhone or cryptocurrencies or the first dot com, a lot of things happened that we didn't really figure out had happened until years later in terms of the impact on society, where we got things right or where we got things wrong. My hope is that this time with those lessons more freshly in our mind, because the innovations seem to be coming pretty quickly, is that we're a bit smarter this time, not just you know anticipating some of the dangers or harms that these new technologies can bring, but also thinking that some of this, particularly when it comes to how young people's lives and consciousnesses change because of these tools, we may not see the, the aftermath for this for 10 years. So it's also know that there could be a long journey that we're experiencing in terms of the real implications. We may not know immediately what these are going to cause or trigger. Yeah, I think, well, that's completely right. I think the big thing for me about this is that we need to engage with this technology as Buddhists. And as Buddhists, we try to act as much as possible like the Buddha would have acted in a certain way. So we try to channel enlightened qualities when we're engaging with it. And so I think that it's really worth just making sure we're really, really drawing from those enlightened qualities. So for example, when people talk about how scary it is, how overwhelming the possibilities are in a negative sense, we can draw from that quality of enlightened fearlessness and say, well, actually, Buddha wouldn't be scared of this. A Buddha would be engaging with it with fearlessness because the Buddha has such a clarity of mind of this is how I know things to be. I know that there will be suffering. We don't have a clear way that we're working towards alleviating suffering for all beings. So I think that's what I mean as well when I talk about using it really skillfully, you know, with that sort of enlightened perspective of trying to save all beings, trying to sort of transcend ourselves, trying to draw on enlightened qualities like fearlessness, like energy channeled towards the good. And if we do that, then we will be in much more control of it. We'll be using it as tools. If we engage with it in, a, I don't know, half-hearted way or a bit of a sort of fearful way or a bit of a sort of lazy way, then that's when we'll just be kind of swept along with however the technology starts to move us. Well, I hope, maybe naively, that these advancing technologies don't just give rise to a fascination and curiosity as to what they can do or what they might do in the future and what effect they might have. But they also conduce people to maybe look inward to discover what it means to be human and to have been born into a human body and the potential that lies within that. That seems a very lovely way to round off this very human conversation. I can't think of a better collection of human beings to have it with. I wish we could go on for another couple of hours. Maybe we should be one of these podcasts that lasts for like four hours. Do you know those ones where they just go on and on and on? Anyway, I'm very grateful to you all just for this range of perspectives. And actually, one of the things that comes across most for me listening is just another kind of gratitude for the care that people in our community take over these kinds of things. We're all intended to be good citizens, good digital citizens, and also just good human citizens. We're taking part in society and we want to help. We want to make a difference. So I feel actually quite lifted up by the future of robots in our particular community and I look forward to artificial intelligence displacing my own and all of yours in a way that is for the benefit of all beings. All our retreat centers will run more smoothly. I'm sure that's true. All our online businesses will run more smoothly. So I'd like to thank, in no particular order, I'd like to thank you, Siri and Naga, for coming. It's great to hear just how much thoughtfulness and I suppose, subtle 
tension you've brought to this already, even though it's in its nascent phase as technology. Thank you very much, Chandradas. I really, really enjoyed talking to you and everyone else here about this. Yeah. And thanks to you too, Todd, for zooming in from London. Yeah, such a kind of grounded perspective on the one hand, using this in the workplace as a tool that might improve business, but also just what you obviously bring to as a Buddhist, the sense that we shouldn't lose track of ourselves in this whole conversation as human embodied beings. Thanks for attending us for the opportunity. Wonderful discussion and conversation. And I think it's so important that as Buddhists, we continue to engage with topics like this. I think it's wonderful. So thank you. And Caroline, thanks for everything you've brought to this, but also thanks for just drawing attention to the needs of the Buddhists of the future and the humans of the future who are going to outlive us, right? We've absolutely no idea who we're serving, but we are trying to serve them somewhere. And it's really beautiful to hear that evolved so ethically and, and strongly. Yeah, thank you, Chandrajasa. Thanks for your skillful facilitation as well. Really good to be part of the conversation. And Daiketu down there in Mexico City with the sunlight pouring in through the cafe. Looks so idyllic. Thanks for showing up for this. I know this is something dear to your heart as a conversation. We end up talking about it probably much more than we should when we're supposed to be working. But it was really lovely to have your input and I'm looking forward to having you on more episodes of the podcast now that you're joining our team. It's been great discussing this together and I think it's important to always be discussing about uh, new subjects uh, from a Buddhist perspective. Thanks everyone for being here and discussing it together. And last but certainly not least, thanks to you Kima Bandu for such a soft and deep perspective. I loved what you said at the end there about your hopes for this technology. In a way, that's why we're practicing, right? That's why we're engaging with all this as Buddhists because we want to turn it to the good. Yeah, I really appreciated what you brought to that. Thank you, Chandradasa. Thanks for the invitation. It's enjoyable chatting with friends. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the podcast on who knows what. Actually, it's all planned, but I'm not going to tell you in advance because that would ruin the surprise. If you like this conversation, if you like what Buddhists have got to bring to bear on these kinds of ideas, these kinds of human experiences, tell someone the world is absolutely drenched in podcasts. It's almost impossible to find all of the good stuff that's out there. But what really works is human recommendations. So if you like it, tell your friends, tell your Buddhist friends, tell your non-Buddhist friends, tell your parents, tell anybody you like. See if you engage them with the ideas themselves. If that's all the conversation does is spawn other good conversations, then we've done our job. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back soon. Take care, look after each other, and we'll see you for another episode of the podcast in the next wee while. Bye for now. Bye for now.